Well, good morning. Uh, Steve warmed you up. Sound great this morning. Hey, uh, we are in a series called Upside Down Church, where we are spending some time looking at um, what it is that we do that makes us sort of unique. Uh, if we are going to be an upside down church, we want to be that so that we can turn our community, our neighborhood, our friends, our families upside down as well. The New Testament church was particularly good at it. They were weird. They were an anomaly. They were upside down from the rest of society and culture. And as a result, they turned the rest of the world upside down. Two weeks ago, we started this series talking about what community looks like. We talked about the idea of life groups. We suggested that at Parkview, life groups are essential to who we are and what we do because they're essential to your faith journey. It makes us a little weird. It makes us a little upside down. Yeah, there are lots of churches that do life groups. But what we're saying at Parkview is this is the thing. It's countercultural for us to want to be in a group of people and be open with those people. It requires us to think upside down. But that at Parkview, that is where true community, true challenge, true growth, true um, caring happens in the context of life groups. And then last week, we were challenged to love. If we're going to be an upside-down church, if we're going to turn our culture, our world upside down, we have to do love. We had a, a guest speaker, Bob Goff, just a normal, uh, maybe not so normal guy who, who was wired up to do some things and he wasn't afraid to do them. He challenged us with the notion that God wired you uniquely to do something. So don't be afraid to go and do it. It pushed me and challenged me in new ways. And today we're going to talk about a kind of a not so fun topic. I don't know. I seem to always get those. But we're going to talk about this idea of trust. Because I think if we're going to be an upside down church, we have to truly trust in God's best for our life. We struggle with the idea of trust. We struggle with the understanding of trusting God fully. We are accustomed to bringing our own plans in line and putting our own spin on what God would have us do. We place a great hope and trust in our own ability to navigate life. But through the Bible, one of the most consistent themes is God's communicating to his people is this. You won't always understand me, but you can always trust me. I will often throw you a curveball, but when I surprise you with trouble, I will also surprise you with the grace you need to survive. The impossible is my specialty. I, um, I don't really like fair rides. You know, the carnival comes to town. And when I was younger, I went to a fair in my town. It was the event. It was the thing that we all went to. And I was on a ride that sort of spun in an oval. And then the carriage that you sat in spun. And it got stuck at the top. And I got stuck upside down. 
It was a miserable, miserable, what seemed like an eternity, but was really probably just a couple of minutes. I don't like that feeling of being out of control. I don't like being upside down. We don't like being in a position of needing to trust something or someone other than ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I struggle to trust the people around me, let alone a God that I cannot physically see. I like being in control of my life. I like being in control of the world around me. I've learned at least in my life that this boils down to the notion of trust. Control is the exact opposite of trust. But trust, a trust in God is at the very core of our ability to successfully navigate life, even when God surprises us. C.S. Lewis, an author and thinker, a theologian, philosopher, wrote a book called The Abolition of Man, and it says this, You cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To, quote, see through all things is the same as not seeing. There's a lot to that quote, but what Lewis is saying is, if you can see over and around all the challenges, all the obstacles in your life, then you're probably not really seeing the world as it is. When God surprises you, when his ways seem mysterious, when the things that he is challenging you to do are filled with risk and unknown, it's in those moments of trust where our relationship with Christ becomes a living with Christ. It's in these moments that we discover what it means to trust God rather than control him. In my life, I have been surprised a few times. It took my wife and I eight years to have our first child. We were told that it was a mathematical improbability. We were told that the only way that that was going to happen is through the use of science. But science is expensive, and we didn't have it. And so we prayed, and we said, God, if you want us to have children, you'll make a way. And so we resigned ourselves to what we thought was going to be a life without kids. And then God surprised us. God provided a doctor that helped us. God provided resources to allow us to use science. And we were able to have a child. But that's not where the surprise ends. Because I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I wasn't planning on this working. I know I asked God for it, but I wasn't really trusting that that was going to happen. And I realized sitting there in that doctor's office that I didn't know what to do next. I didn't know how to be a dad. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that was, how that was going to change my life. I was worried about being a failure but God had other things in mind. And as I, that 
baby came into our life. That child became a part of our home. My life was turned upside down. And I was put in a position of not being able to trust my own plans because I didn't have any. And then against all odds, two years later, Piper comes into the world completely naturally. I had resigned myself. I had created a great plan about being a dad to one. And God messed that up and provided another surprise. And I didn't know what to do with that. I don't know where you are this morning, but I suspect none of us like those surprises that are around the corner. None of us are really thrilled when God throws us a curveball. We like God in a box. We like our life neat and tidy. Well, grab your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right there in front of you in the chair pocket. Take it home. Keep it. Make it your own. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 30. So if you're new to the Bible, take the Bible and open it to the middle. And then start thumbing to the right until you hit the book of Isaiah. Once you hit Isaiah, go to chapter 30. We pick up this story a third of the way through the book. And Isaiah, who is a prophet, a prophet is someone who is a spokesperson of God. Typically, as in this case, the spokesperson is sent to a specific group of people. And Isaiah is sent in this moment to talk to the nation of Judah. God has provided them a plan and Judah is being rebellious to that plan and God's ticked off. So he sends Isaiah into clean house. And being a, a father of two young kids, it's not lost on me that it took him 66 chapters to fix the problem. But at this point in Isaiah's vision for Judah, God is saying to his people, trust me, I will surprise you. Be open to me. Let me lead because I plan to remake the whole human scene. Look at verse one in chapter 30. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. You see, in this point in the story, God's people are faced with the growing pressure of a warring nation next door. The Assyrian empire is descending upon them and they're bullying the nation of Judah. And they were afraid. Life was closing in on them, and despite the promise God made with them to provide all the protection that they would need, they let their fear overpower their faith. And God said to them, let's do this together. Let me help you. On top of the promise God had proven, on top of that promise, God had proven to be trustworthy over the years. God had not let them fail. God had seen them through. God had walked the journey with them. But there was something deep inside them, and I would argue that there's something deep inside each of us that understands the past, that sees that God has been faithful. But the tyranny, the urgent, the present circumstances overpower that memory. And we lose sight of God's ability to lead in our life. This is where the people of Judah are, and they make the mistake of creating an alliance with the nation of Egypt to protect them from Assyria. 
but that wasn't God's plan for them. In fact, he had previously liberated them from Egypt and they were literally going back to their captors and saying, will you protect us? God's irritated by it. So here's the deal. God, through Isaiah, is telling us, he's telling Judah, but he's telling us as well, I am more concerned about your plans than I am about what you believe about certain things. He wants to be in charge of the practical side of our faith. We are at our best when God is in control of our everyday life. God is always in the business of protecting his people. He's really, really good at it. But they decide to make their own path. And I wonder how many of us can relate to that. How many of us can relate to the notion of forging our own path, of making our own plans, of having our own stuff that we hold on to to be secure with? And if I've learned anything in my own personal journey with God, it's this. God is not interested in blessing my plans. He's only interested in blessing the plans that he creates. Matthew eleven twenty eight puts it this way. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We hear a verse like that and I'm not sure always what to do with that. How do I do something like that? It begins with trust. It begins with letting go. Something we are conditioned to resist. Especially men. Especially us guys. We we are conditioned from the beginning of time to carry the burden of the people around us. We are conditioned to be in control and in charge and to not let go and to not let loose. But guys, here's the deal. When you and I take the burden on ourselves and not put it on God, we are expressing our own will in the midst of that because his desire for us is to take our burdens of life and place them on him and allow him to navigate our life. But we are, as guys, particularly challenged in this area. Letting go and letting God is not what we do naturally, but we must. Part of turning the world upside down, part of being an upside down church is that we learn to stop trying to make things happen and we let God do what God does best. So just like life groups are at the core of what we do, I'm going to say that helping men trust somebody other than themselves is also at the core of what we do. We don't do this to the exclusion of anyone else. I'm just telling you my own struggle as a guy. We're here for everybody to recognize they need to trust God. But I'm saying that guys are uniquely disadvantaged in this area. We want to to help transform men to trust God with the everyday practical side of their faith. It's a part of what we do. It's not the whole of what we do. Why? Because the the world needs dads that trust God more than they trust themselves. The world needs husbands that trust God more than they trust themselves. The world needs 
people, men, women, that trust God more than they trust their own ability to navigate life. All of us struggle with trust, not just the guys. We're just really good at it. The nation of Judah is in that very moment. Let's skip ahead to verse 8. Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, make it simple and memorable. That for the days to come, it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no, no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. For Isaiah's generation, the treaty with Egypt was only the symptom to a bigger issue. The real problem here was their lack of interest in hearing the truth. And so they say, put God over there. I don't want to hear that. I have a plan. God is over there. My plan is over here. I love God. I worship God. I want God to be real. For, for, For me in this moment, I need that off the path, my path. A follower, to be a follower of Christ requires oftentimes extreme trust. Our journey with God gets deeper the more we expose ourselves to the truth, all the truth. Even when it offends, even when it's hard to consider, especially when it goes against our best laid plans. Verses, verse 12, Isaiah turns it back on us. He describes what our own plans, our own efforts to navigate life look like. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and depended on deceit, because you've gone back to the nation of Egypt and decided to take things into your own hands, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. He's saying you can build your wall. You can create your plan. You can feel safe and sound within the box that you are creating. But the reality is over time, that will crack. That will fail. That will collapse in a heap around you. And it will all be useless. It's not pretty, and it's really not very fun to think about. The message here is our natural mechanisms responding to life may seem very, very impressive, but they cannot be trusted. Entering into a trusted relationship with God means we go back to school and we relearn how to trust the one who created us. Isaiah goes on in verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You didn't want any piece of that. You said, no, we'll flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we'll ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. I'm going to run away. I'm going to do my own thing. All that means is the world will travel faster to get you. 
When Isaiah says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. He means that repentance and trust are God's way of filling us with salvation and strength. Anything other than those two options is again putting us in charge. It's about stopping. It's about resting in God. It's about being quiet enough to let him lead This is about putting your family above your aspirations. It's about putting the needs of the people in your life above your own. It's about having a funeral service for your agenda so that God can raise you up to be the mom, the dad, the husband, the wife, the son, the daughter, the employer, the employee, the neighbor that he wants you to be. At the very core of this is the idea of surrender. In verse 18, It's the pinnacle of this chapter. He says, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Our salvation requires us to turn back to God, to stop the silly efforts to save ourselves. Our strength will come from settling down in complete dependence on God but we don't want to do that. And God says, I'm not finished. I'm waiting. We say, how long? And God says, whenever you're ready. God's waiting is all about grace. He is patient with us. He puts up with our shenanigans. He anticipates and compensates for our needs. Nothing will ever separate us from his love. But that's about his faithfulness, not ours. In fact, chapter 29 is all about God turning his vengeance on his people because of their disobedience. I chose not to mention that passage of scripture. So look at verse 21 as we wrap this up. Verse 21 says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. You see, it's in, it's in Christ alone. It's in grace alone. It's in faith alone. It's in trust alone. In the good and the bad, our plan or his plan. We are much better off when we walk in his plan. I cannot tell you the number of times that I have failed as a dad or as a husband, the mistakes that I've made, the apologies that I've had to make in life. I have lost my way more than one time in life, Uh, both physically, spiritually, emotionally. I have lost my way from time to time. And there's nothing more frightening than that moment when you're standing there alone, trying to find your true north. But God promises in scripture that his voice will say, hey, here's the path. Let me help you find your way back to the path. Now walk this way. The chapter ends with the anger and fury and craziness of God coming down on the Assyrian people, destroying the enemy of Judah and protecting them once again. 
And that's how the story ends. He says to his people, here's the path. Walk in the path. So what does this mean for me? What do I do with this today? Let me give you three things and we'll be done. The first is this. Trust the path God has for you. Trust the path God has for you. I'm telling you, every single person in here, whether you feel it, whether you know it, whether you understand it, there is a plan for you. So trust that plan. Number two, let God surprise you. Take God out of the box. Let God surprise you. Look for the surprises. Don't look for the smooth path. Don't look for the comfortable. Let God surprise you. And number three, break the false alliances. My youngest has this little stuffed thing that she carries around. We call it her lovey. And if lovey goes missing, the whole world is upside down. We have spare loveys. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. What are you, what's your lovey? What's that thing that you're holding on to that is more important than God's plan for your life? Is it your job? Is it your bank account? Is it a relationship? Is it your family? What is it that you have said, I know there's a plan for me, but I need this thing over here to make me feel safe and comfortable. What is it? Whatever it is, if it's in the place, if you've removed God's plan, God's best for you and put that as your salvation, get rid of it. Identify it and cut it out. Find your way back to his path. If we're going to be an upside down church, if we're going to radically change our neighbors, our community, the world around us, it starts and ends with our ability, our comfort, our ability to trust God that he's going to do what he's going to do, that he's going to do what he said he was going to do in our lives. Father, trusting you is not an easy thing to do. We struggle with it every single day. We are conditioned to trust what we can see and what we can feel and what we can put our hands on. We're conditioned to find a way out and trust that. But your desire for us is for us to trust you. So this morning, challenge me, push me, fill me. And I pray that same prayer for everyone in this room. Fill us. Don't let us just be these comfortable, suburban Christians and people who come to church. Let us trust you for every single step of the way. Let us find your best for our life. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.